Good morning. I'm going to begin really quickly by trying to clean up something from last week. I was trying to quickly recite through a portion of 1 Timothy 1, and I didn't get it exactly right. I brought in some of Revelation 5 and didn't get everything right. And I'd like to just start by, one, apologizing, telling you I'm sorry for that, and ask you to forgive me for that. And I'm going to start by just reading the passage so we can get it exactly right. So if, you, if you'll just bear with me for a moment. This is 1 Timothy 1. I'm going to start in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is good. Amen. If you would turn with me now over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Lord willing, we're going to conclude our study of the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. So this morning I'm going to read them in full, starting in verse 6. This is what the word of the Lord says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray one more time together. Father, there is much to consider regarding how your word reveals your magnificent glory. And Father, it is 
<clears throat> far beyond us to comprehend. <clears throat> we are certainly unworthy to behold it, and I am insufficient to expound it. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us an abundance of grace, that we would consider your glory in humility as those who know that we need your grace, that we need to know you, that we need to behold your glory and be satisfied in your glory. And, Father, we are thankful that you have indeed revealed your glory and brought about glorious salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would help us to behold your glory in his face, that your Spirit would give us grace to see and understand and to follow your commands, that in all things we would honor you. In praise in Christ's name. Amen. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's uh, really interesting to, to look at the story of the rich young ruler, uh, especially in the context that we're in right now in Deuteronomy 5. Because Jesus lays out five of the ten words to him that he's supposed to follow. He asks, what good deed do I have to do? And Jesus gives him five of these ten words. It's interesting to consider the ten words he, he doesn't give. Because he gives him five of the ten. He gives him the second great commandment to love your neighbors yourself. What he doesn't tell him is to love the Lord your God, to have no other gods before me, to, to bear the name of the Lord your God in a way that is not vain. And he doesn't give him either of these coveting commands here at the end, nor does he tell him uh, about the Sabbath. And I think what this is revealing is, is the heart condition of the rich young ruler, because these are heart commands mainly. The man has done things that are generally moral. He has not constructed an idol so as to obviously betray God, and yet what we're seeing is, though he, he hasn't constructed an idol, he has plenty of materials in his possession that are idols to him. And thus, he will not follow Jesus, and he will not find Sabbath rest. The, as you go on in Matthew 19, you see a stark warning laid out for, for the danger that riches can pose to people in, in drawing their hearts in covetousness away from the Lord their God. And certainly, for us as Americans who are so uniquely wealthy, we need to take that warning incredibly seriously. The message from that passage is that, you look at the rich young ruler, he is a generally moral person. He, he does not have these obvious glaring sin issues. And yet, for, for his general morality and his riches, he is not willing to follow the Lord. We, as Christians, need to be profoundly thankful. And the reason for our profound thankfulness is because we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That, that When we were discussing this in the Sunday school a few weeks ago, that this is eternal life, that they know 
you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to know God. That is our source of unequivocal wealth. And it should drive us to utter thankfulness because there's no greater blessing that a human can have than to know the Lord their God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And so, because we have been so profoundly blessed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that puts us in a position to then look at other people in, in a way that is not covetous, but in a way that we can extend the love and blessing God has given to us, to them. We can look at them as those we would serve, not as those we would covet. And, and, and this, this touches down to even if we think we have very little to offer, if we have the gospel, we have everything to offer. If you could imagine a scenario where the poorest Christian is somehow in relationship with the richest pagan, don't be confused about who has more to offer. It is certainly the poorest Christian because they are offering eternal life to know God by proclaiming the gospel. That rich pagan, everything they have is going to be destroyed. It will rust away. The blessing of knowing God will never fade. It is eternal life. So when we're looking at uh, the conclusion of these, these 10 words here, right? this is, this is kind of like a part two to last week. So I'm going to have the same main point, which is just generally that love cultivates life, whereas sin breeds death. Love cultivates life, sin breeds death. Um, I've gone over this intro multiple times just to give us some context about the 10 words. I'm going to just do it again because I'm hoping it will just continue to be a, a helpful reminder and guide for us. These are 10 words. Certainly they're called 10 commandments later on in the scriptures, but these are 10 words. And the reason they're called 10 words, or one of the possible reasons they're ten, called 10 words, is that I think they're revealing God's glory. These 10 words are showing us the glory of God and how we are to imitate it in a similar way to how God created everything by his word. And that creation made by his word was designed to reflect the glory of God. So in similar fashion, Israel as a nation is being called to follow these words and so similarly to the creation, reflect the glory of God. We saw that dynamic being laid out in Deuteronomy 4. They're called to image the glory of God in such a way that even the nations see God's profound and incomparable majesty. And so as we were reading through, if you want to go back later, you can see how these words seem to be very similar to Exodus 34 when God's declaring his name to Moses. He's revealing his glory to Moses on Sinai in a, in a very profound way. And, and it seems as if these words are shaped around that revelation of who God is. Um, and, and, and so the experience for Israel and for us as we consider, it, it's as if we're being brought into the very holy of holies to see the glorious character of God. And similar to the glorious character of God in Exodus 34, where God is committed to his own triune glory and he is committed to loving his people and faithless, these 10 words can be summed up as loving the Lord your God and as loving your neighbor as yourself. So we're seeing here that these 10 words are similar to the glory of God revealed in Exodus 34 and it's calling us to reflect that glory as well. I think that's going to bear itself out in Deuteronomy 6. I mentioned last week that Romans 13 seems to, to illustrate that dynamic of these, these commands toward the end, reflecting loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think what we just saw in Matthew 19 uh, reflects that as well. So to give a quick summary of the first four words, as, as I take a number, we see in verse 6, I think, an introduction, a, a foundational piece to understand that as they're coming into covenant relationship with God, the basis for that covenant relationship with God is his grace, not their merit. He is the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. 
and we'll see as we go into Deuteronomy 7, it's not because they were a great nation that was really worthy. It's because of God's electing grace and favor upon them. And, and from there, God calls them to have no other gods before me, that they are to only worship the Lord their God. And then as Pastor Jeff and I explained, we take verse 7 and then following in all the way to, into chapter 10, we take that as one large command. They are to worship only God, and they are not to worship God by constructing an image. They are to reflect his glory as his image. And as his covenant people, as his covenant bride, we saw language uh, in Jer uh, Jeremiah 31 when we were reading earlier, God had called Israel to be a covenant bride to him, him being their covenant head and husband. They were to, as a good wife, bear his name in a way that reflected his glory. Not to, in the second command, bear his name in a way that is vain, in a way that dishonors him ultimately. And because God is a, a good covenant head, they are to take the seventh day each week and to rest enjoying his presence, enjoying his provision, and being thankful for him, enjoying their God. And then the fourth word, teaching their children to similarly love the Lord their God and to understand that their, the children need to honor their father and mother. They need to obey their parents with respect so that they learn that they're ultimately dealing with God in how they interact with their parents. Children need to be trained to honor their father and mother so they learn to honor the Lord their God. So these four words at the beginning, I think, are summing up how the people are to love the Lord their God. And those four words seem ideally situated for them to do what Deuteronomy 4 mentioned, which is that they would then reflect God's glory to the four corners of the earth so that everyone sees the glory of God as they love the Lord their God. These last six words, starting with the command, you shall not murder, these, I think, are situated in a way, these six commands, are, are situated, as I mentioned, to show you how to love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems fitting that there would be six words to teach us how to love humanity, because humanity was made on the sixth day. So we have these six words to teach us how to love humanity. And in loving humanity, we are to reflect the God of life by not taking away life from humanity. I think that's why this starts with, you shall not murder. And in similarly, this point that I mentioned earlier, the main point that sin breeds death, that word and that we see starting every command after you shall not murder is uniquely here in Deuteronomy 5, not in Exodus 20. I think it's to show us that any departure from God's commands is a means of pursuing death. And not even just for ourselves. Any mistreatment of other people is a means of pursuing death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is deadly. And I mentioned last week, I wonder if the reason for this, uh, these additional words here, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, having that and there here, I think that might be reinforcing the lesson they should have learned in the wilderness. There's various ways in which God tested them, and they did not respond in faithfulness and in obedience. And what was the result? Their sin led to death consistently. So I think he's reinforcing this point. If you are going to sin, understand that you are pursuing death. We talked last week specifically about how adultery is tied to murder and, and, and tied ultimately to a pursuit of death. And in part of that is to commit adultery necessitates that you commit adultery against the God who commands that you be faithful to your spouse. So your first step in adultery is a departure from God. And if you are departing from God, you will not find life. So adultery is tied directly to, to death 
and so is 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 uh, adjacent to this idea of murder. Additionally, adultery is an attack on the foundational covenant unit from which God produces life in this world, a marriage. It is a pursuit of death. It is destroying a covenant unit that God uses to produce life. And now as we come to these last four words, the movement's going to be from, if you, if you consider just broadly with me, uh, starting in verse 17, you have an act in verse 17, an act in verse 18, an act in verse 19, and then you have words in verse 20, and then two heart matters in verse 21. We are, in a way, ending where we started. They are to have no other gods besides the Lord. Their heart is to be oriented towards worshiping the one true God. And so we're ending where we started. Your heart should be focused on the Lord, and the manner in which you're focused on the Lord and having no other gods besides him is to be thankful for him, not covetous. God is showing us that the source of all these other sins is ultimately from a heart that is straying from him. And so we were talking about this yesterday morning. What we see here, I think, in Deuteronomy 5, and what we see as well in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus and, and, and other teachings in the gospel as well, I think is just good exposition. Jesus is showing in, in the Sermon on the Mount something that's not new. He's showing us the right way to understand Deuteronomy 5. The heart's the ultimate problem. If we want to reflect the glory of God, it has to go all the way down into our hearts. And so I think what he's showing in the Sermon on the Mount is that they haven't been taught well. These Pharisees have told him sin is all about the externals and we can avoid all this and the other and if we just follow these laws externally, we'll be fine. And he's saying, no, this is a matter of the heart. And I think his explanation is just good exposition of what we see in these 10 words. That leaves all of us guilty though, doesn't it? Because none of us has followed these 10 words perfectly. Certainly if we consider how they're drawing us to consider the heart matters as well. What we need is one who can come and fulfill these words on our behalf and give us a righteousness that will never come from ourselves. Amen. And that's what Christ has come to do. We see, we see how these, these 10 words, you can see nine of them restated in the New Covenant. So they're a continuing part of following Jesus Christ and his gospel uh, and, and the New Covenant he's brought about. The one that's not restated is the Sabbath. And the reason I think it's not restated is because we have eternal Sabbath now. What the Sabbath was anticipating has come in full through what Christ has accomplished, which we'll discuss more of later. So we're going to continue considering these words, and we're going to continue considering these words with an anticipation about uh, uh, an anticipation of how Christ is going to fulfill these words as well. So, verse nineteen, and you shall not steal. So this is again starting with this word and to tie it back to verse seventeen. Ultimately, you shall not murder. We see how stealing is a pursuit of death in that. If you're going to steal someone's possessions, you're taking the fruits of their labor, the exercise of their livelihood. You're going to take that away from them. This is a robbing of a sort of livelihood that is consistent with death. It is sin. The next time we see this word for, for theft used in the book of Deuteronomy will be in chapter 24, talking about stealing a man entirely and kidnapping like we see with, we've been talking about with Joseph's situation in, in Sunday school. So you see how theft is not going to stay the same size necessarily. You think you're just going to steal a few possessions here or there. 
and yet this can can grow grow to the point of stealing an entire person, stealing their entire life. And so the penalty for that that we'll see in Deuteronomy 24 is that if you steal someone's life in kidnapping, you deserve the death penalty. So we're seeing stealing is, a, again, a means of pursuing death. So if we consider um, something like the transatlantic slave trade, we see how there is so much guilt and sin to go around on so many different people um, and, and so many different skin colors. Because the vast majority of those slaves were kidnapped by other Africans. That's a sin. There's so many parties involved in that. Kidnapping is heinous. We, we still have slavery going on today, even in Africa. We have human trafficking here in the United States, and unequivocally, those who are kidnapping other people deserve the death penalty. You cannot steal another person's life through kidnapping. It is not acceptable. When it comes to stealing possessions, we see God's profound grace, because if you look at other ancient Near East law codes, uh, you, what you'll see is that there are these very harsh penalties for stealing. And yet God's standard for stealing possessions is you're going you're gonna to make restitution. And so the way that God handles this is all, in a way that can really easily facilitate reconciliation. We see the grace of God even as he's giving this standard. And to further emphasize the point that stealing is, is ultimately a pursuit of death, we have to consider that stealing is not ultimately against um, the person who owns those possessions in that moment. Because ultimately what Psalm 24 shows us is that the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. So when you steal something from another person, you're ultimately stealing from God because all of it is God's. He's called people to be stewards over possessions, but ultimately that's all God's. And so when we steal, we are stealing from God and we are departing again from the God of life. We will not find blessing. We will only find death in that, in that action. Additionally, Ephesians 4 is helpful here. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So there's, there's the standard for how we imitate God. We imitate God by doing work just as he does glorious work. And through that work, we then provide for other people to seek to, seek to meet their needs, to give life and blessing however we can to other people, not take for ourselves and consume insatiably. That is a pursuit of acting like the serpent. Verse 20, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's really interesting. That word for false, to describe false witness, is the same word described in verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That word for vain, that's the same word. So what we're seeing here um, is, is an overlapping concept. And to, to talk really quick about verse 11 one more time, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We see how obviously that's, that's a pursuit of death because you're, you're not going to be faithful to your covenant head. You're going to depart from faithfully following God. Of course you're going to end up in death. We, we see how this can come to fruition as well. In Psalm 139, it talks about how those who hate the Lord take his name in vain. That means it's showing us this category of people who think they can somehow be right with God and yet act however they want. And what do they do in that scenario? What, who is Psalm 139 ultimately about? It's ultimately about Jesus. And so these people can go to the extent of opposing the Lord's anointed in their hatred of God. The very one God has anointed, they will stand in opposition to. And we see that come to fulfillment in Christ's life. How is he ultimately charged? By false witnesses. 
These people who think they're right with God and yet have taken his name in vain, then follow in that vanity, in that falsehood, by bearing false witness. And so what, what we see from that in Jesus' situation is that this sort of um, false witnessing is ultimately a, a pursuit of capital punishment. It's a convoluted pursuit of murder. So I don't think this is giving room for lying, but I think it's about something even bigger than lying. This is about lying in a courtroom to bring about a punishment on someone who's innocent. This is not consistent with how God deals with humanity. God has called his people in Leviticus 19 to love their neighbor, same word here, to love their neighbor as their self. They are not to bear false witness and so hate their neighbor and seek to take away their neighbor's life in this convoluted pursuit of murder. I'd like us to go over to Exodus 23 really quick. Well, I shouldn't say really quick. I'd like us to go over to Exodus 23 for an undisclosed amount of time. And I, I don't want to say it's going to be quick. I, I think this passage is so foundational. It's perhaps one of the most helpful passages in all of Scripture for understanding what civil justice looks like according to God. This is a really, really important passage. So when we think about justice in the civil realm, this should be one of, if not the first, passages that comes to our mind. So Exodus 23. You shall not spread a false... I'm sorry, I'm starting at the beginning here. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So this is getting really uncomfortable really quick. We are not supposed to be speaking falsehoods about other people. We can't just say things that we think about other people or say things that are false about other people. We are not to join hands with the wicked, nor are we to just join hands with the many. We can't just go with the flow. We can't even be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Justice is about pursuing what is true. What is right? Not about how we can situate the scales in a way that seems best to us. God's standard of justice is to pursue what is true. And the fact that it's supposed to be uncomfortable, I think, is illustrated in the next part. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I think this is laying out for us that if we have an enemy in our daily life, if that enemy is in need, we are to love them and help them. So what that does is it sets the stage for when you do have a situation where someone calls you to court to bear witness, your life is a pattern of loving your enemies. I'm not going to come into court now and bear false witness. I'm going to imitate the Lord my God and love even my enemies. If you try to call me to, to witness against them, I'm going to continue in the same pattern of following the Lord my God, and I'm going to say what is true not what is convenient. And I think that's shown by how it comes right back to the same topic of justice. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So there's the other side of it too. You can neither just show partiality towards the poor, nor can you seek to abuse the poor. 
The standard is just what is true. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. We are to pursue truth even if it's costly. That is, that's God's standard of justice. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. We are truly to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to speak the truth, even when it's inconvenient, and even if that person is someone we would consider an enemy in some way. God's standard of justice is a pursuit of the truth. It is not about how emotionally fitting it seems to do something that's a little false. Justice is a pursuit of truth, and we are to show utter impartiality in so pursuing justice. If you'll flip back over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's a lot that can be said about social justice, and I'm not going to say all of it here, but I am going to say some things. This is where social justice fails to be biblical justice. Because it is an assumption that if there are unequal outcomes, it must be due to inequity or injustice. We cannot come to a judgment and then try to find the evidence. We have to look at the evidence and from the evidence come to conclusions. And, and what one of the very sinister things about social justice is that it oftentimes makes these conclusions that tug at our hearts all the while not having that evidence. And when evidence is brought forward to show that those claims aren't true, it ignores the evidence. And I, I think it's certainly true that there's a number of people who are pursuing ends via social justice with very good intentions. But the problem is, if we have good intentions, but we stray from what God has said in his word, we're ultimately going to do harm. Our good intentions will not be enough to bless other people. And, and these 10 words are giving us some various instructions that, that challenge a lot of the presumptions that, that we see in, in this modern social justice movement. You see, verse 19, you shall not steal. We don't have a communal right to other people's stuff. We, we don't get to say, your stuff needs to be redistributed to someone else. We don't have the right to do that. Additionally, we're going to see this as we go into the, the um, uh, coveting commands here. And we're going to, we also saw some of this in the Sabbath commands. There's not necessarily going to be equal outcomes. There's some who are the head of the household. There's wives. There's children. There's, there's male servants. There's female servants. These are not all equal outcomes. And yet, that's not necessarily due to injustice. We have to be able to say that this is part of how God's designed the world. There's not going to be an equality of power. There's not going to be an equality of outcomes. There's not going to be an equality of authority. And that the solution in all this is not to covet. God didn't make us to covet. God made us to be thankful. God made us to work as he works. And so, as we discussed, to bless others and love others. We are not to look at others wanting to get from them. We are to look at others wanting to honor God by blessing them. And if I can just take time to, to, to give an example of, of how this sort of false witness and sort of false uh, report spreading can work. Um, I wanted to talk about this, this idea of defunding the police that we've, we've seen coming up, especially since 2020. 
the the claim that the police are more of a danger to black communities than an actual help. This this I think was bearing false witness uh, for a few reasons. One of them is that we have seen how in the recent decades proactive policing in these communities has helped reduce crime. It's helped reduce murder. It has been a benefit. It's been good. And and similarly in the more recent years this sort of stuff has been happening where police have been withdrawing because of certain narratives and that has resulted in harm resulted in increased crime increased murder rates and so as as this narrative became even more prominent in 2020 and certain areas have followed with that narrative what has been the result historic rises in crime and murder rates death is coming from this false witness people are being harmed including children there's a, 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 a gentleman on, on Twitter, and I, I think he's a Christian, but at the top of his Twitter feed is just this list of black boys and girls who are being killed in the streets that no one talks about. They're never part of the narrative. And he's saying, I'm going to keep track of them because we need to know that these ideas have real consequences with real faces. Innocents are dying from these false narratives. And we shouldn't be shocked by this. Even, even biblically speaking, the idea that we would take the sword from the government to take away their one main responsibility is folly. It is not a pursuit of biblical faithfulness. And one of the things that I think is ironic, and we'll see how these, these court cases play out, um, it's already taken place where in several states, including liberal states, the Black Lives Matter organization is, is not a viable organization to donate to because they have not been keeping sufficient financial records for people to know and got the government to know what they're actually doing with a lot of this money that's being donated to them. So in a way, they're actually being defunded right now in certain states. And what we'll see when we get into Deuteronomy 19 is that when you bear false witness and you want a certain sentence to be passed on your enemy, when your false witness is found out, that sentence is to be turned right back on you. And God is sovereign. He will do as he pleases. And <clears throat> one of the other things I'd like to talk about with this idea of social justice is how at best it downplays the heinous, widespread evil of abortion. I'd like to read a quote from Candace Owens. She says, the same people who scream about black incarceration rates, economic disparities, and impoverished neighborhoods never lend their voices in attacks against the welfare system, which inspires all three. She's pointing out that a lot of these things that are said to be inequities, if we would do research, we'd see they a lot of them stem from this one issue, the, the welfare system, and how it encourages the breakdown of the family. But she's making a bigger point with this. She's showing a uh, an inconsistency there and then an even greater inconsistency. She says, similarly, is it not a wonder that the same people behind the Black Lives Matter campaign, the ones who claim to care about the unjust slaughter of blacks in the streets, refuse to acknowledge that today the most unsafe place for a black child is in its mother's womb? And she's not being hyperbolic. We are at a point in our history where for every 10 
black babies that are born in this country, there are four that are aborted. Ten to four. In recent years, we've reached a point where in New York City, there are more black babies aborted than are born. And since Roe versus Wade, we are over 19 million black babies that have been killed, murdered in the womb. Social justice is not preserving life. It is spreading death, and it's doing it very quickly. Whether we're talking about in the womb, in these, in these inner cities, and even in the church, because we are winking and flirting with social justice and downplaying God's word in, in the process. Acting like false witness can be excusable if it's well-intended. Acting as if stealing and redistribution is somehow legitimate. Encouraging coveting and downplaying mass murder. But not only is this a departure from biblical ethics, this is a departure from orthodox theology, a proper understanding of God, and a departure from biblical eschatology. Social justice is ultimately predicated on the idea that the government can play God that the government can somehow give life, that the government can somehow make all things new, that the government can somehow make this utopia apart from God's presence and apart from God's word. And if we should have learned anything from the 20th century, we should have learned that that will not work. We need to love other people enough to speak these truths Certainly we should do that in kindness, but God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance, and that necessitates speaking the truth as revealed in his word. We have been far too focused on this false, unbiblical notion of niceness, where we think we can somehow tailor the truth in a way that will ultimately make it inoffensive to a watching world. This is not biblical. We don't have to make it any more offensive. If we simply speak the truth, it will be offensive. And we have to be okay with that. It is a blessing to be reviled for the sake of Christ. This world is desperate for the truth. They need to hear the truth. And we have to be faithful witnesses like Jesus, who is in, who is in and of himself the true and faithful witness. Because what we're seeing here, we were talking about this yesterday morning as well, saying, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's not telling you not to be a witness. You must be a witness. You must speak the truth and declare what God has said and so reveal his glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not just to protect the innocents who are being harmed, but to save souls. There's much at stake. And we must not, simply by the emotional pull, join into bearing false witness. Verse 21, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I mentioned earlier, we're ending where we began, which is at our very hearts. And whether we're talking about the Pharisees or talking about, to borrow a term from the Just Thinking pod, podcast, whether we're talking about social justicians, or the, whether we're talking about ourselves, we all want to think 
the problem isn't here, it's out there. The problems in the systems, the problems with other people, perhaps the problem is white skin deep. In either case, we're wrong. Right there. In our own self is our biggest problem. Not anyone else, not any system. Our biggest problem is our own sin, and it is not a close contest. It is from the heart that all of these sins that we're looking at here ultimately flow. And if we are all honest, we know that our heart produces more than enough sin to send us to hell, deservedly so. There's two commands here for coveting. And I think that even highlights the point further. Two commands for coveting. The first one, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That word there for covet is actually first used, or it's used, I'll just say this, it's used in Genesis 2 to describe how the trees that God had made for food were pleasant. They were to be desired. And then the next instance that we see of that word used in Scripture is in Genesis 3 to describe how Eve looked on the tree that was forbidden and saw how it was desired to make one wise. Eve, in following the serpent rather than her husband and rather than God, becomes the first adulterous woman because she is breaking covenant with God. And what does Adam do? He follows an adulterous woman who's actually his own wife because he's following her and breaking covenant with his God. Their coveting led to what? Death. Death. And the instruction here to not covet your neighbor's wife enforces some of the things we talked about last week. We talked about how in Exodus 32, they make this golden calf. They are breaking covenant with God, similarly following an animal just like Adam and Eve did. They're breaking covenant with God. They rise up to play, presumably, possibly, committing sexually immoral acts. We're seeing how adultery against God so quickly crops up in sexual immorality. And we actually see this in the reverse order in Numbers 25. These Moabite women coming, tempting, and doing what? Ultimately leading, ultimately leading the Israelite men both into sexual immorality, but then ultimately into idol worship and adultery against God. And what was the result of both Exodus 32 and Numbers 25? Death. Coveting your neighbor's wife leads to this sort of adultery, this sort of breaking covenant ultimately with God that leads to death. And I think because of their experience with this, the order here is actually switched from Exodus 20. So I wonder if God switched the order here in Deuteronomy 5 just to put this right in front of them and say, don't keep doing this. This always will lead to death. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. They need to nip that coveting in the bud, in their hearts, lest it grow into adultery, breaking their marriages, and ultimately adultery, breaking covenant with God, resulting in their destruction. Second part of verse 21. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. It's, it's um, really interesting here because it's talking about not coveting 
anything that is part of your neighbor's household. And yet that word that's used there for you're not to desire, that's a word that you can kind of, uh, I think the ESV translates it in Numbers 11 as cravings. And I think that's a pretty good way to translate the word um, because as you see how this word is used and, and used in different ways um, throughout Scripture, it can, it can have a range of talking about the, the craving one would have for food and including a craving that would be associated with sexual desire. So this is a word that has a, a pretty broad uh, spectrum uh, of meaning, and I think it's to convey a point. He wants them to not desire, to not covet anything that is their neighbor's. And so I think this is helping us enforce, helping us understand the point that if we are not exhibiting self-control in all areas of life, we are likely to start seeing sin in any area of life. And we, and we see this dynamic, especially if we look at the ideas of, of, of eating and sex and how they are, are cravings, desires. You could look at Eli's sons as an example of this, where, where they are eating things that they should not eat, and then what are they doing? They're committing sexually immoral acts as well. We see the same thing with false teachers whose God is their bellies, and then Second Peter and Jude really draw out the sensuality and sexual immorality that we see associated with them. We talked in Romans 13 about paganism and how so often you could see it tied with this gluttonous feasting and, and, and orgies and sexual immorality that flows with it. And so what we're seeing is this stark warning that we have to show self-control in every area of our life, even down to what we eat. And I appreciate how hard that is to say in a Baptist church, but it's true. What we're seeing here, because a lot of these parties, this is just a mirror of what you see with the Sabbath man. Rather than coveting someone else's household, what we're to do is to be thankful for all that God has provided us. Because God himself is ultimately the foundation of our blessedness, not our household. If we further consider what we deserve in and of ourselves, it helps highlight this point. I we were um, we had plans yesterday evening, and our youngest, if he doesn't get a nap, is rambunctious. We'll say late at night if he doesn't get a nap. So I was like, I'm I'm gonna make sure he gets a nap. So I'm sitting there holding him, and he. Sometimes you have kids where it's like you know what song will help them get to sleep the best, and I sang holy, holy, holy. I think like ten times in a row. I'm not exaggerating. I was like, he's either going to fall asleep or I'm going to lose my voice. This is where we're at. And I, I got done singing, and by God's grace, he fell asleep finally. And I come out of the room, and I look at Lindsay, and I'm like, I deserve a cookie. And then it dawned on me, and I, it wasn't a big, serious theological comment, but then it just dawned on me, like, no, I don't. If I really think about what I deserve, what, what, what I really deserve, me apart from Christ, what I deserve. There's only one thing I really deserve. I deserve hell. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That's, that's what we deserve on our own apart from Christ. If we have anything, welcome to the blessed state. Even if it seems like very little compared to what other people have, to have anything other than the judgment you deserve right now is a great blessing. And how much more 
that we would have God's ultimate blessing in Christ. This is where that, this sort of covetous disregard of how God's blessed us. That's why I think we see Paul calling, coveting, ultimately, idolatry. We don't love the Lord our God that much, and so we're going to covet all these other material blessings. That's, that's idolatry. The rich young ruler, like I said, he didn't necessarily build an idol, but he certainly had idols. And we will too if we are not content with, with God. We see with James in chapter 4, he's talking about where does all this fighting and quarreling, all this murder, where, where does that all come from? Because you covet, because you desire and you do not have. That's ultimately the sort of demonic way of living that he outlined in chapter 3. This is not in accordance with God. This is not thankfulness for God. And I, we were talking about this yesterday morning as well. The problem is not the strength of our, our desires. It's actually the weakness of our desires. C.S. Lewis talks about this, um, this dynamic where the problem is we are so content to sit in the mud and make mud pies. When God is beckoning us to a vacation at the sea, why don't we want the greater thing? Because our desires are, are too little and they're too easily satisfied with worldly things. If we understood how, how fleeting the things of this world are, we'd realize there's far more to be had. A stronger desire with a greater satisfaction to be found in God. God takes these cravings, these desires to covet anything, these desires to go astray in any area of life where we have an appetite. God is the ultimate source of satisfaction that allows us to enjoy things properly and to not covet. God gives us the bread of life. He gives us living waters. He allows us to be partakers of new covenant blood, to be part of his people. There's no better meal to have than that, to be part of his people. And in addition to that, as if that were not enough, we are then called into being part of his covenant bride as the church of Jesus Christ. And there's no greater intimacy to be found than that. Our blessed state in Christ is how we know we are unequivocally going to enjoy ultimate grace and glory forever. And what that means is, as we look at our trials, whether that be something that we are going through that we wish we didn't have to go through, or whether that be us not having something we wish we did have, we can know that those are opportunities for us to become like Christ and to overcome these situations, to endure these situations in a way that brings about the glory of God even in a fallen world. And what's more, we will be rewarded for these things. Eternal reward. Everything that we might not have is actually a means of us experiencing great gain. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is where covenant needs to come to die. God has given us so much more. And we look forward to even more in eternity. Covenant is only going to breed death. Why? Why would we bother with it? Instead, because God has so loved us and so blessed us, we are then situated to actually 
fruitfully go love and bless other people instead of desiring what they have. We can go love humanity and love others as ourselves. We don't need the attention of man. We don't need the approval of man. We don't need the accolades of man. We are here to show mankind the glory of God so that they will be blessed. We are not here seeking to pursue man's glory so we can be satiated. They need the glory of God, and we are here to proclaim it. And we are here to proclaim it for God's glory and for their blessing, not for ourselves. I mentioned how I think what's going on here in Deuteronomy 5 in these 10 words is very consistent. Uh, that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount and in, his, in the Gospels is really just a proper exposition of these words. And I, and I mentioned what this is showing us is, is the heart matters. It, it, the, the heart matters and there are heart matters that matter significantly because it is from our heart that we stray from God. It is from our heart that we end up in coveting. And it is from our heart that we can very easily find ourselves on the way to hell. On our own, that is what we deserve. And on our own, there is nothing we can do about it. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But I think even here, and I mentioned this last week, I'm going to reiterate it, even here in how God is giving these words, he is showing the path from which God is going to deliver even more grace to his people. Because these commands, you keep going through them, masculine singular, over and over again. Because there is one man who is going to come who is going to fulfill these words in such a way that his righteousness can be credited to God's wayward people. Indeed, these 10 words are revealing that the ultimate glory of God is going to be revealed in the one who is the word. He is going to be the one who fully obeys these commands and images the glory of God like we talked about from Deuteronomy 4. He is going to be the king in Deuteronomy 17 that we'll talk about who fulfills what Torah is calling for, who fulfills the covenant with David as the true Israel, he fulfills what his people were supposed to be. And because he does that, he is also the better Moses that is coming in Deuteronomy 18 to redeem his people out of their sins and to fulfill what we, what we looked at when we were looking at Jeremiah 31. Jesus has done this. Jesus came and rejected the enticements of Satan as he followed only the Lord his God as the true image of God. Second command. Jesus, the great I am, has perfectly borne the name of our God. Third command, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath rest by doing the work we could not do and by undoing the curse by his death on the cross. And after fulfilling perfect Sabbath rest on the seventh day, he has brought about eternal Sabbath rest to us on the eighth day by his resurrection. Fourth command, Jesus is the perfect son, honoring the Father in full by perfect obedience and respect. Fifth command, not only did Jesus not murder, Jesus came and was murdered to show mercy even to murderers. Sixth command, not only did Jesus not commit adultery, he shed his blood to take an adulterous people and make them a spotless bride. Did you see that in Jeremiah 31? Israel had not been faithful to their covenant head, and yet he calls them virgin Israel. He is not only going to redeem them, he is going to make them new, pure, and spotless. And that is what Christ has done. Seventh command, not only did Jesus not steal, he freely gave his life as a redemption price for his people. Eighth command, not only did Jesus not bear false witness, Jesus is the true and faithful witness, revealing the glory of God and making us 
his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Ninth word, not only did Jesus not covet his neighbor's wife, Jesus rejected the offer of Satan to reign under him and over Babylon the whore and obeyed his father while loving his bride by giving his life for her. Tenth word, not only did Jesus not covet his neighbor's household, because Jesus delighted in the father, he rejected the comforts of this fallen world that he might make all things new as the Lord over all creation. This is what our Savior has done. In the Old Testament, you could join based off of a physical circumcision. It did not guarantee that you were circumcised in the heart. And yet, what we were looking at in Jeremiah 31, these commands are now written on the hearts of all those who are in Christ. Because of what he has done on the cross, by the Spirit, he now circumcises our hearts and writes the law on our hearts in such a way that we can actually follow these commands by his power. Because we don't have that power on our own. We are saved both from the penalty of sin and from the power of ongoing sin. Because the Spirit is in us, the Spirit has given us newness of life, and the Spirit gives us the very strength of God. And through that Spirit, we are able to, therefore, in Christ, love the Lord our God. We are able to love Him in such a way as to show His glory to all those around us, as we even love humanity, even those who are, who are our enemies, as we follow the example of our Lord and Savior. And what the result of this will be is that we will fill this earth with the glory of God. It's all four of those corners. That all of humanity will know the glory of God. And what will happen is as we proclaim that gospel, God's elect will return from death to life, from darkness to his glorious light. And that glorious light, that experience of seeing this profound revelation of who God is, we are going to experience that face-to-face -face for all of eternity. And so may we look at these words and walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling.